It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This show is supported by State Farm. You have insurance for your home, your health, and your car. Why don't you have insurance for your small business? So many small business owners think they don't need or don't even know about small business insurance. Protecting a source of revenue is one thing, but so is protecting all of your hard work and your team members. State Farm agents are all small business owners too, so they know how to help small business owners choose personalized policies that fit their budgets. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. From the studios of WVMM 90.7 The Pulse on the creek front estate of Grantham, Pennsylvania, this is the Wave Improvement Leads Home podcast, a bi-weekly discussion dedicated to American history, historical thinking, and the role of history in our everyday lives. And now, here's your host, author and award-winning historian, John Fia. Thank you, Drew, and welcome, everyone, to episode 17 of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. And our first episode of season three. That's right, season three. I can't believe we've been doing this that long. Drew, it's good to see you. Happy New Year. Uh, well, I guess it's February now. Is it too late to say Happy New Year? What's the rule on that? I'm going to have to say yes, but I'm going to let this one slide, John. <laughs> is, that like wearing, is that like wearing like white? I can't wear white after a certain date or something? Yeah, you're or starting before. to sound like someone who stores his Christmas tree up. Yeah, I but yeah. I'm gonna let Christmas it... lights, not Christmas <laughs> okay. tree, though. Yeah. I'm going to let it slide only because it's the start of a new season, and we're excited to note that this is our first season with our new funding structure in place. As many of our listeners know, we launched a Patreon campaign in the off-season, and we have been overwhelmed by the pledges of support that we've already received. And in fact, we should pause for a moment and pay some bills. This podcast is brought to you in part by the generous support of Lisa DeGuardi and Ron Schooler. We also have our first advertising partner, Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right college fit for your future. I love that. It sounds like an official ad, right? The right college fit for your future. So get out there and contact Jennings College Consulting if you have a young person interested in attending college. Thank you for uh, all your support. We are so encouraged by uh, the support that's coming in, the pledges that we're getting. And we just ask you to continue to help us. I like to say on social media, on, on the blog a lot, I like to say we always need good American history, but we especially need good American history history in times of great political and social and cultural change. So please support what we're doing here at The Way of Improvement Leads Home. And uh, I understand there's still a lot of nice uh, gifts involved too, right? Absolutely. We are at, the po- at this moment keeping the lights on, but we still need support if we're going to continue to bring you insightful and crucial historical analysis for this moment we all find ourselves in. So head over to thewayofimprovement.com and click support to find out more about how you too 
can become a regular supporter of the podcast. Well, Drew, it's been a few months since we've been on the air together. What's happening in the Drew Durley Hermeling history graduate school world? Delicate balancing act. I'm trying <laughs> to strike a balance between teaching, and I uh, actually just wrapped up a, an intense three-week January term Native American cultures class here on campus at Messiah. Uh, my own scholarship. I'm presenting a paper, actually, um, at the Society of Early Americanists in uh, their annual meeting in Tulsa in a couple of weeks, and I'm preparing for those dreaded comprehensive exams. So if we're going to sum up history graduate school world in one word, stressful. Stressful indeed. We also, by the way, have a new member uh, of the team for this season. Some of you remember Michaela Mummer, who is our studio producer. She is in Nashville this semester studying to be a famous radio celebrity. But we found someone to step in and take her place. His name is Josh Lowry. Actually, Josh was in the same program in Nashville last semester that Michaela's in now. So for those of you who did not see our blog post introducing Josh, let me say here he is a junior broadcasting and media production major at Messiah College. He's from East Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. And I think I'll just leave the rest up to you, Josh. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? All right. Uh, I'm a broadcasting media production major. I am 21 years old. My passion is concert production. I want to go on tour as a touring monitor engineer. I'm currently happily engaged and I'm going to be getting married uh, next summer after I graduate. And I'm just looking forward to working for the podcast and what you guys bring me through. We're bringing we're you know we're going to give you great fame and glory here, Josh. I look we're so glad to have Josh on the podcast this season as our studio producer. You'll be hearing more from him in future season three episodes. Maybe we'll hear how his semester's going and so forth. And as always, if you want to help us spread the word, ratings and reviews, whether on Stitcher or iTunes, are a great way to help other history lovers find this podcast. So, Drew, what's on tap for this episode? Well, it's February, and so this is our George Washington episode, and we're excited to have Douglas Bradburn, the founding director of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the study of George Washington on the show. Yes, I can't think of a better person to interview for our George Washington episode. Uh, as you'll hear in our interview, I got to know Doug a little bit when I was in residence at Mount Vernon for a month last year. Doug is a great scholar, a great administrator. He's also a really fun and passionate promoter of history, and especially uh, the history of George Washington. Well, with that, John, I think we're jumping straight into the deep end as you explore the relevance of history to our current political situation. So with that, here's today's story. Last March, Barack Obama chose Merrick Garland to replace the late Antonin Scalia on the Supreme Court. The nomination process did not go well. Republican Party senators, led by Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, asserted that they would not fulfill their constitutional duty to advise and consent on Garland's nomination. The obstinate behavior of the GOP-controlled Senate was unprecedented. There has never been a case in which the Senate refused to even consider holding a hearing on a nominee. It was a historic moment. And now, fast forward to February 2017, despite a minority in both houses, Democrats are doing their best to stop Donald Trump's cabinet nominees. There is even talk of trying to prevent Trump's Supreme Court nominee, Neil Gorsuch, from getting the votes he needs to sit on the highest court in the land. 
All of this posturing and partisanship is not new in American history. George Washington, our first president, had a few things to say about the potential of this kind of political gridlock in his 1796 farewell address to the American people. I want to encourage you to Google it and read it. As Washington left office, he reminded his fellow Americans about the values, ideals, and practices that would keep the republic strong. He also warned them about the prevailing threats that would undermine it. One of those threats was political partisanship. Here is just a taste of what Washington wrote in that farewell address. Political partisanship serves always to distract the public councils and enfeeble the public administration. It agitates the community with ill-founded jealousies and false alarms, kindles the animosity of one part against another, foments occasionally riot and insurrection. It opens the door to foreign influence and corruption, which finds a facilitated access to the government itself through the channels of party passions. Thus, the policy and the will of one country are subjected to the policy and will of another. There is an opinion that parties in free countries are useful checks upon the administration of the government and serve to keep alive the spirit of liberty. This, within certain limits, is probably true. But in those of the popular character, in governments purely elective, it is a spirit not to be encouraged. From their natural tendency, it is certain there will always be enough of that spirit for every salary purpose, and there being constant danger of excess, the effort ought to be by force of public opinion to mitigate and assuage it. A fire not to be quenched, it demands a uniform vigilance to prevent its bursting into a flame, lest, instead of warming, it should consume. Nearly 10 years before Washington wrote these words, he presided over the writing of the United States Constitution in Philadelphia, a document that begins with that oft-quoted phrase, we the people. Washington worried that political factions, such as today's Republican and Democratic parties, weakened Americans' commitment to the common good. Political partisanship, he believed, promoted the worst forms of selfishness. It undermined the we in we the people. As we witness these embarrassing displays of partisanship and the blatant attempt to privilege politics over George Washington's Constitution, we are reminded that we have still not learned the lesson that the Mount Vernon farmer was trying to teach us back in 1790. This show is supported by State Farm. Insurance is a part of any solid financial plan. Making sure you have the important things in life covered is one of the best ways to give yourself a little breathing room when things go awry. It's important to protect not only your business, but yourself as a business owner and all current and future team members. State Farm agents know what it takes to run and protect a small business because State Farm agents are all small business owners and they live and work in your community. So they're deeply attuned to what's happening with other small businesses in your market. If you have a small business and are interested in making sure you're protected, reach out to your local State Farm agent to learn more about what you need. They'll help you find the right policy at the right price for your business. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. 
Thanks, John. And I think that that is a great segue for today's guest. Dr. Douglas Bradburn is the founding director of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington. Before coming to Mount Vernon, Bradburn taught American history at the State University of New York at Binghamton, where he was director of graduate studies in the history department. A specialist in Washington's era, he is best known for his book, The Citizenship Revolution, Politics and the Creation of the American Union, 1774 to 1804, first published in 2009 with the University of Virginia Press. As Drew already mentioned, our guest today on the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast is Douglas Bradburn. He is the founding director of the Fred W. Smith Library for the study of George Washington at Mount Vernon. Doug, great to have you on the show. Oh, thanks for having me, John. I appreciate it. Tell us then, for those of us, for those of our listeners who are unfamiliar with the Fred W. Smith Library, what is it? What is its mission? You know, what are some of its signature programs? You know, what do you what do you do there? Oh, great. Well, thank you so much. It's a uh, presidential library for George Washington is one shorthand way to think about it. And it's here at George Washington's estate at Mount Vernon. Uh, the difference, of course, between us and the National uh, Archives system of presidential libraries is that we're a private uh, institution. The Mount Vernon Ladies Association, which runs and operates George Washington's historic home, owns and operates this library as well. And it's uh, it's on the scale of a presidential library. It's 44,000 square feet, but it's also brand new. It opened in September of 2013, and so we're the newest of the presidential libraries. And uh, like I said, we're not government-run, but we do have a good relationship with the National Archive uh, system. Great. So what is it? Uh, it uh, its mission is to help teach about the life and legacy of George Washington to multiple audiences all over the world. Uh, we really are a part of the mission of the Mount Vernon Ladies Association, which is to maintain George Washington's estate and educate people everywhere. Uh, they do it by people who come to the estate. They get only over a million visitors a year. And the library does it really in a variety of ways. We are a center for scholarship. So we promote uh, scholarship here. We have a lot of fellowship programs, research fellowship programs, which you, John Fia, should be well familiar with, given that you were a fellow in our library. And I should add, Doug, that we actually uh, recorded some of our early episodes from the DeVos house where the fellows stay, believe it or not. Yeah. Well, there you go. Cross-pollination. Yeah. In the, our, in the our, our, our listeners know Mount Vernon very well. <laughs> well, good. So, so the library really has a I kind of think of it as on the spectrum of, of public history and public education. Mm -hmm. We sort of do it all. So we are on the one end of the spectrum. We're still collecting rare letters and materials from George Washington's time. These are things that are in private hands that are coming up for auction, and we're trying to win them at auction and bring them back home to Mount Vernon so they could be available for scholars and students for years and years to come. We uh, sponsor the fellowships. We have a digital uh, program and digital publishing program for the, the Encyclopedia of George Washington, which has had over six million views since it started wow. when we began the library. And then as we move along that spectrum, you get more from the research side into the more uh, public history programmatic side. Uh, we have public programs. We have free book talks every month. We've got conferences and symposia. And we have teacher programs. So we bring K through 12 teachers to Mount Vernon every year, from about 200 a year from all over the country who come here. They live in the estate for a week or so, and they learn about 
you know, the best uh, practices of teaching the founding era, uh, both from established scholars, uh, uh, you know, famous historians, but also by teacher practitioners who are kind of doing it in the classroom. And then finally, uh, our Leadership Institute, where we have different programs for corporate groups, military groups, and graduate student, or, sorry, college student groups who come here and learn about George Washington's leadership. A whole range of programs from, you know, the really uh, social, uh, uh, library science-y type stuff all the way over to the, the more aggressive, outgoing kind of leadership program. We normally do this at the end of the episode, but that might be a good time. How do, how do we find you? Where are you online? If we uh, want to learn more about these programs, yeah. where can we go? Yeah, so I would go to mountvernon.org, uh, and uh, from there you could click through to the Washington Library, which is like we call ourselves for short, the Washington okay. Library, like the Nixon Library or the Clinton Library or the right. Reagan Library. Uh, but we could also do mountvernon.org slash library, and that'll bring you right directly to our page. And on that page, you'll see about some new acquisitions we've had. You'll see some resources for teachers, like we've had a lot of interest in George Washington's farewell address, for instance, recently. Right. Some uh, previous events and then upcoming events as well. Now, it's also, as you mentioned, it's also a research library. And you yes. mentioned some of the letters you're trying to get and so forth. Tell us a little bit about the collections. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah, the uh, it is a niche research library with a focus on the founding of the United States. So we do have a circulating collection of all the kind of books that you'd want on that subject. And then, of course, we have our special collections, uh, which are uh, encompassing of the archives of the Mount Vernon Ladies Association, as well as uh, original documents and manuscripts from the 18th century, uh, of which we've got uh, a modest amount in the range of about 10,000. Uh, of those, of course, we have George Washington's uh, library, parts of his library that are here, as well as a number of George Washington letters and manuscripts. One of my one of my favorite moments, I was actually at Mount Vernon for a month, as you mentioned, last about this time last year. And one of my favorite moments was when a popular radio personality who will remain nameless, okay, it was Glenn Beck, um, uh, <laughs> claimed that he had Washington's copy of Don Quixote yeah, and it was yeah. just it was just so fun watching you guys running around trying to like <laughs> debunk this or tell us a little bit about that story quickly yeah, yeah sure well it's a it's a it's an interesting story on a lot of levels the first interesting part of it is of course that George Washington owned a copy of Don Quixote but not only a copy of Don Quixote but multiple copies of Don Quixote and uh, the English language version that he owned was by Tobias Smollett uh, London, 1786. He purchased it on the same day that he signed the Constitution, September 17th, 1787, which is extraordinary. You're like, well, why would you go out? You know, you've just finished the Constitution, so let's go buy a little bit of light reading. Well, he bought he bought it. Uh, we know why he bought it, because of uh, uh, a few months after he purchased that version, he gets a letter from the Spanish ambassador. And the Spanish ambassador, now George Washington, is back at Mount Vernon, right. writing to him saying, Your Excellency, I remember when we were together at Dr. Franklin's house in Philadelphia, and you mentioned you didn't know the great Cervantes. So here is the best edition, the finest edition <laughs> made from the best materials, all from Spain. I only wish it was in English so you could enjoy it more, right? Right. So, uh, so that's so okay. So that's fantastic. And clearly, you know, so he's at this dinner party with Benjamin Franklin, and Washington, who's a self-educated guy, you know, and who he he added books to his library as he felt like he needed to know things. And and so he, he probably said, well, I don't know Cervantes. And Franklin, you can imagine him saying, well, 
my dear general, you know, go down to this bookstore. You'll find a new edition there. And and he clearly bought it uh, to read on its way back to Mount Vernon. So that's an extraordinary thing. Now, uh, Glenn Beck, who is a collector of Americana and uh, I think has some some very nice items. At the time, if I recall correctly, he was on the campaign trail as part of the the, uh, Republican it might have been Ted, it might have been Ted Cruz he was supporting at that point if I remember yeah, correctly. May, yeah, maybe. Yeah, but he would wave around this old book and he would say, "This is George Washington's copy of Don Quixote that he purchased at the time of the Constitutional Convention." And I think what um, I think he was just mistaken because there's another copy from George Washington's library. Of of a book by Don Quixote, and he may have one of those. He may have one okay. that's a you know a later edition. I don't know exactly what he yeah. has, but the decision we were kind of making within the library itself was sort of like, uh, you know, obviously we want to say no, we own the the real edition, but we were really more interested in figuring out how do we tell this story to people, which is a really interesting story, right. uh, and also doing it in a way where we don't want to kind of make fun of Glenn Beck or anything like sure. that. There's really, sure. you know, and so that was kind of. I think part of what we were probably arguing about was sort of to what extent we should just go go crazy with it and, and to what extent we should right. just try to do it on the sly. No, I mean, that's a great glimpse of a kind of behind-the-scenes kind of thing that, you know, uh, a useful thing yeah. that, that the, the, the library uh, can do. Yeah, thanks for sharing that story. Yeah, well, I think, you know, one of our missions is, you know, to, to make George Washington relevant. And right. one way you do that is by, uh, you know, responding to things that are going on uh, in the world, and it's always a challenge here between sort of our, you know, our marketing department and our new media department. Yeah. Their desire to sort of be, you know, uh, to be relevant and to be, uh, you know, reactionary, and and then on the other hand, us scholar, us scholars who just sort of like want to take forever to do things, right, and, right. and do them at our own pace. And yeah. so, you know, there is that sort of uh, bandwidth issue, sort of like how much you can actually do in a day, but. Well, it's, yeah. it's public history, though, right? I mean, yeah, that's the kind exactly. of stuff you have to consider yeah. when you're doing this kind of public history as opposed to scholarship. You do. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, we have now a very strong uh, social media presence, both in the library and at Mount Vernon. And, we, and you know, and we, the Mount Vernon estate has got a huge number of followers on Facebook. Yeah. I think it's over 100,000. Wow. And we are, you know, we're pretty strong as well for an institution yeah. like us. And we've been trying to grow it. But we've also tried to distinguish a little bit our voices, you know. So the Mount right. Vernon estate will talk to their audience in a certain way. And we, in the library, uh, and also on Twitter at GW Books, right. will, you know, we, we're more scholarly, I think, is what we're trying to go for. But, it, you know, in, the, in that sense that there's multiple publics out there that have a lot of different ways they want to engage. And that's been a lot of fun. Sure, yeah. sure. I would suggest, I would also give another plug there. Um, if you're on Twitter, follow them, at GW Books. Uh, get, on your, get on your computer right now, your phone, and, and click follow. Drew, you had a question. Yeah, well, and, and you led into this quite nicely. You're talking about multiple publics and the tension between a, a public audience and a scholarly audience. If I'm yeah. an ordinary non-scholar, uh, yeah. pretend that I'm not a grad student for a moment, how might I... Um, you know, visiting Mount Vernon, use and see the library? Yeah, well, you know, first of all, the library is open for anybody to come do research in. Let's make that clear, that it's easy to get a, you know, you just have to make a research appointment. In that regard, it's not much different from like a, you know, a, a research library like the Newberry Library or right. the American Antiquarian Society or somewhere where you, you can walk in off the street, but it works much better if you just kind of email ahead, uh, you know, to, to our uh uh, you know, to our uh, library site here. 
Um, also, you know, if you're visiting Mount Vernon and you really have this burning desire to to come see the library because it is a beautiful building, yeah, you know, that's fine too. You can email our staff here and they'll set up a chance for you to come take a look. Uh, at the institution, you know, it, it's uh, we don't have the staff really designed to welcome the million visitors a year who come to Mount Vernon. So we do need to hear from people in advance. But we also we want people to be able to see it. Now, also, I would say that we have a great uh, virtual tour online. If you go to the mountvernon.org webpage and you go to the virtual tour, not only can you virtually tour George Washington's estate and go inside the house, which is a place, of course, where you can't take pictures when you visit. But also, uh, you know, it's 360 degrees, so you could get motion sickness doing this tour. <laughs> but you can also go in the library, and you can hear from yours truly and some of my staff talking about what we have and our programs and all that sort of thing. And then I guess finally, I would say, if you really are a history buff and you just, you, you're looking for great history content, you know, all our lectures are up there on our webpage. Yeah. We live stream a lot of things now on Facebook Live, typically. And so uh, we, we do want to be, you know, a, an engaging a platform for people to to uh, to learn history at whatever level they're interested. In. I would just add to that that you know the the list of speakers you guys bring in. I mean, any you know some big time big time historians. Anyone writing about George Washington or his time, it seems like you guys have them there, and, and a lot of programming on that front. And again, just to reiterate what Doug said, a lot of that is available online. I used to love sitting in the reading room during the month I was there, and and people would come in, and you'd give them you know your staff would give them tours after a yeah. month i pretty much had the whole you know thing memorized <laughs> you know after a while you could do it yeah, um, well, we should enlist you to do some of the tours yeah yeah Absolutely. maybe next time well, um, a lot of you know most librarians when they sign up for a job like that they don't realize that they're going to be touring so right, it's a, right. a special institution where you get to do that sure let me go back to something you mentioned before one of your programs you talked about uh, uh leadership and washington as a leader and talk a little bit doug about your interest in washington as as a leader, I know you speak on this topic, and then maybe even you know how, as an academic historian, how you got into sort of you know speaking yeah. about leadership, how 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 you bridge that gap between talking to business people versus the yeah. you know the scholars that you talk to, or the you yeah. know even just the general history buff. Uh, that's a great question because it's a it's an interesting trajectory in my own uh, right as somebody who is a. You know, I'm a, a PhD historian right. by training and have written scholarly things and trained graduate students and taught uh, students and really hadn't thought about leadership at all um, as a subject of interest until I came to Mount Vernon. One of the things, so I'm the founding director, remember, of this library. So I'm right. the first one. And what that meant was I got to build a lot of the programs. And one of the Mount Vernon Ladies Association believed that one of the reasons George Washington should still be relevant is that his lessons of his stellar leadership, you know, can be learned from. This idea right. that we learn from uh, figures and, and great leaders can learn from figures. And so uh, they thought that we should be doing some leadership program in this new library that they built, yeah. you know, when they're kicking around ideas. And so I was sort of tasked as the founding director to look into this and really decide whether we wanted to do that or whether we didn't want to do it um, too aggressively. And, and uh you know, I was a little skeptical at first, um, you know, but yeah. I, the more I got to learn about, there's kind of two levels that this this leadership studies world 
So leadership studies is actually an academic discipline that yeah, exists it, out there, which I didn't have any conception of right. uh, when I came here. I don't know if, if you do. Or I don't, but we have, we're, yeah. you know, here at Messiah College, we're, we're constantly yeah. looking to instill a leadership minor. And so, yeah, yeah it is a discipline. Yeah. 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 So there's a discipline out there that's really kind of evolved over really from the 80s. And, and it kind of exists in this weird, it's a weird animal because in some places it's kind of a business school sort of thing. In some cases, it's actually in psychology departments, yeah. you know, because leadership is about, like, why people do what they do at some level. Uh, in some places, it's a political science sort of discipline. Right. And then you do have some sort of uh, people who are trained as historians who actually end up working in leadership programs. Like, there's the Jepson School, which is an undergraduate mm -hmm. program at the University of Richmond. And there's some other graduate programs yeah. and leadership studies out there. Uh, so there's, on the one hand, that sort of academic emerging discipline, which is sort of a, a mishmash. And then on the other hand, you have what I like to call kind of somewhat tongue-in-cheek, the uh, the leadership industrial complex, you know, <laughs> which, is this, which is the sort of, uh, you know, this leadership programming that a lot of yeah. HR departments and talent development, now, now they have people called in corporations, you know, the person, the vice president in charge of talent development. Yeah, it's sort yeah. of looking at ways to help with the professional development of their people. And you see this, of course, in the military. You have a lot of this sort of professional development, with, which looks at particularly leadership, as you might imagine. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so this sort of professional development model, uh, and in some cases, it's a for-profit model, you know, like Franklin yeah. Covey, these all these, right. these big uh, multinational uh, corporations out there, actually, that have businesses in this. And so we've kind of uh, here in the in what's our George Washington Leadership Institute, we kind of said, well, you know, what can we do here that we feel, um, you know, will help people learn about uh, leadership from the example of George Washington that is both historically based, uh, but also something that we feel like will be relevant for some of these different groups, and and so uh, and so that's been a lot of fun, really developing this. Uh, model of uh, of leadership training based on biography here. So, you know, we, we look at the biography of George Washington and we think about, you know, what are, you know, he, he clearly was a very successful leader. I mean, here's right. the guy, you know, he he was the, you know, head of the, he, he won the American War. He was commander in chief for 18, or for, sorry, for 16 years as head of the army and then as first president, president of the Constitutional Convention. He also was a leader at a very early age. He's colonel of the Virginia Regiment when he's 21 yeah. uh, in the French and Indian War. He has some kind of epic failures in that period in his life. And, you know, he, you know so he's a very well-written-about person. So of any 18th century figure in America's past, you feel like, wow, you could really uh, take apart his sort of you know, the biography of his leadership and learn from it. And so what we've done is we've developed a lot of our own curriculum on the one hand that we would love to see used in some of these leadership studies programs, which is available for free on iBooks. You can you can see we've had four different cases now, which has paired historians like myself and Jim Kirby Martin and yeah. uh, Denver Brunsman and some other people who are experts on the period with, uh, you know, these leadership gurus. You know, right. so, for instance, I wrote a case with a guy, uh, Greg Schultz, Colonel Greg Schultz, who is in charge of strategic leadership at the uh, National War College. Uh, and so we together wrote this piece and it's embedded with videos and all kinds of interactive content. Um, because we wanted to have our own curriculum and really feel like, uh, you know, we could comfortably say that we had things to say about Washington's leadership that weren't taken from other people's work, uh, right. per se. Right. And then, on the other hand, we thought about sort of, okay, well, 
how do you structure a leadership development program for a, a corporate group, say, that wants to come to the come to Mount Vernon for a day, you know, as part of their own ongoing leadership and prefer pers personnel development programs? Uh, and what would we be able to contribute to that? And so that really it really can be uh, a lot of different things. It's a it's a discussion. It's a lecture. It's a specialized tour. It's a chance to reflect on uh, you know on, on a video they might watch, uh, but we also we kind of build them in a bespoke manner. You know, so right. the client basically says we're interested in topics related to you know character based leadership or yeah. leading change in tumultuous times um, or strategic leadership, and we give them an option and sort of build a program for each particular group. Sure, you know? sure. Uh, so it's been it's been a um, it's been a unique and interesting uh, program to build. It's been very successful. We were just, again, awarded by HR.com as a, a, a lead certified you know, uh, yeah. expert in this. We're number 14 out of 220-odd wow. programs in the world, which is remarkable given that we've only been around for a short period yeah. of time. Yeah. But, you know, part of the one of the things we sell here is the special uh, importance of place, you know. Right. Uh, you're here at this uh, Mount Vernon. It's a unique place where you can have some time to think about, you know, this this other person. But, you know, I, I think when you take a step back as a historian, as an academic historian, and say, well, what the hell are we doing here? Um, you know, leadership in history maps really nicely because ultimately uh, leadership is a theory of why things change. You know, mm -hmm. uh, it's a theory about how you get, uh, you know, how you make change in the world. Well, one of the reasons is because of leaders and leadership and then you can talk about what that means and you know servant-based leadership and followership and and the role of followers and leaders and how they interact in team building and all these things it's not the only reason why things change you know historians always have lots of other you know reasons about you know about change but our you know our discipline really is the study of continuity and change sure. so so thinking about how leadership fits into that is is actually I think historians have a lot more to contribute in this realm than we've really recognized. You know, and in fact I, I think uh, it's an area of public history that's a niche area, but it's no less legitimate for being uh, you know focused on professional development versus um, you know historic preservation or civic identity or any number of other ways that public historians are more comfortable with. Well, you have me convinced, Doug. You convinced me that this is this is an important way. You're um, known for your softball questions, John. Yeah. Well, I mean, no, sure. no. I'm sure there. I'm sure we do get some academics who are who are interested in public history listening to the podcast. So if you want, you know, contact Doug if uh, you want to, uh, you know, uh, think more about how uh, leadership studies and public history and whatever your subject. You know, a lot of us write about leaders all the time. Oh, yeah. We don't really write about leadership. You know, it's not a no, category no. Of, of analysis we spend too much time fretting about. But in fact, I think we have a lot to say, and we shouldn't just leave it to the, you know, the so-called leadership specialists to do. Because yes, yeah. we've all written biographies. Anybody who's taken a biographical approach, you're always making judgments about where that person was effective and what they were trying to do and where they weren't. You know, and that those are all ways to think about you know examples that we can build on. And I think as you see the appetite uh, for people to read biographies as a, as a way yeah. that the general audience kind of engages with their past, the biographical approach is one that's really tangible, easy for people to understand. And and one of the reasons I think why people read biographies is because they you know they want to be a voyeur, they want to right. learn from other people, and that's a lot of what leadership stuff is about. 
maybe one of the reasons people are also may want to read biographies, this could be a great era of biography in the next four years because maybe they want to escape, right? <laughs> they want to escape into the past, which leads me to my next question. Um, beyond yeah. the kind of leadership lessons, I'm going to ask you to connect yeah. past with the present. You know, I, we could do a whole podcast, series of podcasts uh, on this question, but what are some things going on in our culture right now and whatever, however you want to respond to this, what are some, what are some ways in which Washington maybe might help us, uh, in our current, our current, uh, you know, climate? Yeah, it's a great question. I think right now there's a lot of people who are looking for first principles and looking back at who the hell we are as a people, uh, and thinking, you know, thinking again about the founders and how they fit into this, uh, environment is our republic going to last? We have a, sure. a president who's never been a politician before. He's never been a military leader before, right now, and uh, you know, and he's a very aggressive guy and and very distinct in many ways. And and we're trying to understand. I think, well, okay, how does this fit in with our long history? But also, there's been a lot of attention to Washington. I mean, if you look at our own, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but we're something like 100% higher in terms of web interest than we were last time at this, yeah. this last year at this time. Is that right? I went. I, I gave a talk in uh, in the University of Southern California uh, with our leadership lecture, actually that we do with the Saul Price School of Public Policy there every year, and I introduced it. And I was talking about George Washington's Acts of Congress, the copy of the Constitution mm -hmm. that he wrote on that we own here. And uh, I, there was a large audience. And usually when I'm out in California, you know, there's a certain sense of uh, crickets. You know, they yeah. think that in 1776 that was important because it was the year the last mission was founded. Right, you know? right. And so, um, but they were locked in. I mean, that yeah, audience was yeah. locked in to me talking about George Washington's presidency. You know, a, a man that was incredibly aware of the experiment in representative government that he was a part of and that he walked on untrodden ground, as he called it, yeah. that everything he did was subject to two interpretations. Everything he did uh, was subject to creating a precedent. You know, and I was talking about that moment, and, I was, and, and people were locked in. And similarly here, we had an event uh, talking about the farewell address in which people were just, um, you know, rabid, I think, for conversation in a way that... Um, Seemed a bit unusual, and I do yeah. think that uh, I, I do think we are um, at a moment where uh, you know lessons of our founding period um, can give both perspective, and they 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 should also give people a little bit of um, uh, enthusiasm to help make sure our republic endures. You know, in the ways that citizens have a role to play in governing themselves, and when we we don't educate ourselves about the past, and we make bonehead decisions. And uh, you know, Washington famously said, "We got to support education in this country because in a country where the citizenry are expected to make the law, if you have an uneducated citizenry, you're going to get bad law." Uh, I mean, so there's something visceral about that that sense that you know we can't just take for granted that our republic will march on forever. That we have a a role to play is a lesson that Washington tried to get across and, and a lesson I think a lot of citizens are yearning for right now. Excellent, excellent. You got to get out on a lecture tour, Doug, and give that address too. Um, I need a publicist. Like yeah, I wish I, I wish I could help you. I, I need one too. But um, yeah. well, you, you're a constantly blogging. You're a great example, I think, for a, <laughs> good. You know, for being engaged. You're sort of fearless in that way. You just go out and say all kinds of crazy well, things. Well, I'm, get, I'm getting. You know, you walk it back sometimes. You know, <laughs> you just got it set I'm up getting there. to be an old man, Doug. I, you know, I'm realizing there's not much time. 
time left. I got to say what I got to say. Um, yeah, let no, me ask I you know. one more question. I know you got to go. Um, uh, let me uh, let me ask you to put your sort of uh, Washington scholar hat on here. Um, tell you know for maybe some of the academics listening, or we get a lot of grad students. You know, people yeah. maybe looking for an MA thesis subject or PhD dissertation. Um, what do we still need to learn about Washington? Or maybe what are some things about Washington's life that maybe it's time for a fresh look from historians? Uh, that's a great question, you know, and it's it's going to sound absurd, my answer to you, because yeah. it's sort of like Washington is ubiquitous and he's written about it, and there's lots of books about right, him. Right, right. Um, but, you know, a lot of books say, are saying the same things over and over again. Yeah. And a lot of the books are sort of accepting old stories because they're great stories without really either checking out whether they're true or you know, or really just pushing them a little bit to kind of understand the context better. And I'm going to say something here. I, I think, you know, for an MA student, there's a lot of elements in Washington's presidency that haven't been drilled down, and the sources are just right there, yeah. you know, in the great papers of George Washington Project. They're all transcribed and annotated and available. Now, there's a couple more volumes to come out in the presidential right. series towards the end. But, you know, things like George Washington's role as the head of the first um, executive office to deal with a refugee crisis when mm -hmm. the Saint-Domingue broke out and all these, you know, uh, yeah. uh, fr uh, French planters are coming to the United States and Congress votes this money and, and hands it over to Washington basically to decide who should get it because they trust him so much. Yeah. But we don't really know what happened there, how it, how it was, how it played out, you know, what he did. And nobody's, I can't think of a, an essay off the top of my head that's yeah. done it. Maybe yeah. someone has and they can email me and tell me I'm an idiot. But, um, you know, there's all these kind of elements of the presidency that are for master's students that are small stories, but really digestible research projects. Because one of the problems, if, you, if I asked you, what is the great book on George Washington's presidency? I don't think there is one. I think a lot of people, and I did this in my own work uh, in the citizenship revolution, we write about the presidency from the vantage point of, you know, of of Jefferson and Hamilton, or Madison and Hamilton, and these people, right, you know, around Washington, without uh, looking enough, sort of, at, at kind of his perspective on what he's up to. I mean, right. we've had some recent books on George Washington and Native Americans to fill some gaps here, but in fact, there's still a lot of room there. I mean, the the Creek Treaty. Uh, the first major treaty in New York City is an extraordinary story for a master's student to, to get into with Alexander McGilvery. And there's been some good work on it, but there hasn't been enough. So I think it, examples like that, you know, um, you, you know, where Washington is actually at the center of the story and it isn't about other people, where he's actually the actor, strangely, the presidency often gets short shrift. Uh, and I'll make one final point on that. I think that um, a lot of the great biographies we have by the time they get to the presidency, they fall into the easy groove of the, the yeah. kind of title controversy, the Hamilton-Jefferson thing, the rise of parties, the farewell address. You know, but in yeah. fact, the second term, you know, uh, there's the Jay Treaty, but then there's these two other cabinet members that nobody's written much about at all, and how they worked with Washington or didn't. You know, so yeah. there's a lot of aspects of that story that um, biographers just have really taken a pass on. I think so. From my point of view, I think there's a lot of room there. Yeah. But finally, I think it does have to be said, uh, there's still yet to be the big book on slavery at Mount Vernon. Uh, Mary Thompson here has mm -hmm. written a book that's in press. Um, you know, it, it should be coming out. But there's still a lot more to be done. I mean, the, the records here to tell the story of the enslaved 
is unlike any other 18th century plantation. It's a, it's a continuous record from 1760 until the death of Martha Washington, wow. and then a little bit beyond. So there's whole biographies that we've reconstructed in our new slavery exhibit here, but there's a lot more to be done. And we've been building the database and with the papers of George Washington, the financial papers, uh, the, the, the resources are there for ambitious students to take on the challenge. That's phenomenal. Yeah, that's phenomenal. It's, it's, it's interesting to hear that there's so much more to do. My, my partner in crime here, Drew, is actually uh, studying for his comps at Lehigh in Native American history. So I saw him jotting a few things down uh, yeah. while you were talking. So anyway, yeah. our, our guest has been Doug Bradburn. Uh, he is the founding director of the Fred W. Smith Library for the study of George Washington at Mount Vernon. Doug, thanks so much for taking some time out of what I know is a busy schedule uh, to talk with us. Yeah. Uh, it's my pleasure. Sometime let's do a roundtable on contemporary events with some people. That'd be a lot of fun. Yeah, invite me. I'll be there. <laughs> All right, John. All right, thanks. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Yep. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. love listening to Doug Bradburn talk about Washington. He, he talks with such a great passion for his subject. Um, he's a really entertaining guy to listen to. And what a fascinating place to be doing work. I mean, you know, as a graduate student, obviously, I'm looking forward to many hours spent in an archive. And I can only imagine that uh, doing research there at the, at, at the George Washington Library must be unparalleled when compared to, to many other research experiences. Doug, uh, you didn't hear this, but after we got off the, off the air, so to speak, Doug tried to encourage uh, Drew to apply for a, a fellowship uh, at Mount Vernon. And I noticed when he was talking about Indians and the Revolution, you were jotting down some notes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. I've got a lot of research coming up in my, in, in my future, so it's a definitely one I'm going to put a pin in and, and, and think about uh, revisiting when the time comes for me to start applying for those kinds of fellowships. Yeah, I mean, it's just a, you know, being there a month, I wish I could have been there longer, but they really, they really have incredible accommodations if you're an academic or historian uh, even a public historian. But what's also impressive is there's just so much energy at the library. Uh, there's there's these teachers institute, teacher institutes. So you have these K through 12 teachers constantly passing through. People are getting tours. There's the sort of buzz as well around the mansion. Like Doug said, the library is just beautiful. Uh, you know, beautiful. The reading room has these beautiful open windows. They have busts of the founding fathers kind of looking down at you at, while you're researching. And, uh, and you know, Doug is does a great job of keeping, uh, you know, everything going. As we've mentioned already, this is such an important moment for the study of of people like George Washington, and, and we see so many people evoking George Washington and ev- evoking the Founding Fathers and in the advancement of their own political agendas, and I think one of the best ways to combat that is to do really good research about people like George Washington or whichever fa- Founding Father you're more interested in. Yeah, Doug really nailed it when I asked him about the kind of relevance for Was- of Washington for today. I'm assuming he could, he could have talked all day about that subject, but uh, again, I think, I really think this is going to be a day and age. I think the silver lining of the sort of whole Trump administration is going to be a renewed sense of of the importance of the past, the importance of the founding, the importance of American history. Uh, you know, I just went back recently. I've been tweeting this. I went back and read some some stuff in my first book on Philip Vickers Fithian, who was a Revolutionary War era chaplain and. You know, when he graduated from the College of New Jersey at Princeton, they all had to do a graduation commencement address. And he hit the title of his address was uh, political jealousy 
is a laudable passion. And he describes political jealousy in the way that many of the ancients described it as someone being jealous for the good of their country to keep a diligent watch on government so that it doesn't become tyrannical or corrupt. So, uh, you know, I just, I've been tweeting that out a lot lately. You know, political jealousy is a laudable passion. Anyway, we learned a lot today from Doug. I was glad that we could have him on and he made some time for us. Uh, you know, I, I hope that you enjoyed it as well. Keep listening to the podcast. Uh, hope you'll come back for our next episode. But in the meantime, may your way of improvement always lead home. This has been a production of The Way of Improvement Leads Home, a blog dedicated to reflections at the intersection of American history, religion, politics, and academic life. Visit us at thewayofimprovement.com. This episode is brought to you through the generous support of Lisa DeGuardi, Ron Schooler, and our sponsor, Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right college fit for your future. We also want to thank Robert Nair and Brenda Schoolfield for their support. If you want to support our efforts, please rate and review us on iTunes or Stitcher so others may more easily find this podcast. The podcast was recorded at the studios of WVMM 90.7 The Pulse. Thanks to Ed Ark for his continued support. Original music is by Overholt. Many thanks to our guest, Doug Bradburn. Our studio producer is Josh Lowry. I've been your producer, Drew Durley-Hermeling, and your host is John Fia. Thanks to State Farm for supporting this show and helping our listeners protect their businesses and lives. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today.